Biblical descriptions of the tribulation are horrifying, and we're in a series on the implications of the tribulation. And we've uh, dealt with several related questions. We've asked, since the Lord is returning and since his ultimate plan is to come back to conquer evil and to eliminate pain, why doesn't he just come back now? And then we ask, since the days are growing so evil, how are Christians supposed to interact in this world? And so we dealt with the tension. If you watched, if you didn't, this was uh, two times ago, um, that we've been called to live and speak the truth in this world, but we have not been called to condemn unbelievers. And so we dealt with how to, to, uh, to manage that, the true love of everyone, no matter how lost or how uh, much of an enemy they are, uh, and yet being uh, truthful with the gospel. Uh, and in a related question, we asked, do the lost deserve to go through the tribulation? That was last week. And in that session, we looked at the life of Jonah, and we found that those who have the truth can sometimes have such a bad attitude or feel like they've been so harmed by someone or by a people group that we basically withhold the truth from lost people. And earlier in this series, if you go back, well, this is number seven on the implications of the tribulation, we dealt with several questions related to suffering. Uh, so we asked, why will God even allow the tribulation to occur at all? A really good question when you see how incredibly bad and painful it's going to be. And then we asked, how can a loving and all-powerful God allow suffering uh, if, he's, if he's both loving and all-powerful? And then we ask, why does God allow the innocent to suffer? A sticky one that we dealt with. So as we um, deal with the problem of pain, dealt with the problem of pain, we left the much broader question of the problem of evil for a later time. And we've come to that time. In the next several weeks, we're going to take on a, a really sticky subject. It's the problem that's been dealt with by philosophers and theologians for many centuries. It's an issue that inevitably comes up when thinkers deal with the existence of God. Let me give you a feel for the kinds of things that we're going to deal with in the upcoming sessions. Does evil actually exist? Or is it an illusion? Or is it a matter of preference? Something we'll really deal with tonight. Is there really a way to determine right and wrong? Or are all ethical determinations ultimately arrived at based upon a person's own point of view? Is truth relative? Why did God allow evil to occur at all? Why does God allow temptation to occur? Does God have the capacity to choose evil? Is God the author of evil? Did he create evil or did he just provide the potential for it to exist without causing it? These are the kind of questions that have come in uh, over the, the months and, and years uh, that I've been teaching. And as you can see, we're going to take on some pretty heady issues. So to really deal with the implications of the tribulation, we can't simply just let these questions go unasked. Because if evil doesn't exist, and if humans aren't responsible for evil, then there's no way that God could hold humans accountable. And there's no basis for future judgment. And there's just no reason that God should allow, should allow the tribulation to occur, right? If it's not real, and if we're not responsible for evil, it would be unfair of God to allow the tribulation to occur, or judgment for that matter to occur. Now tonight's session will be uh, a really unusual thursology. First, we'll deal with very little scripture, 
And as you know, we usually deal with a lot of Scripture. We deal with almost solely Scripture. And second, we're going to deal with quite a bit of philosophical thinking. But don't be scared off, because I'll try to teach the philosophy from a perspective that's understandable from everyone, uh, who, by everyone who's, who's watching. And third, I'm going to read quite a bit from some great philosophers. But as you'll see, I put the quotes in your handout and you can follow along. And so you'll have this material at your fingertips in the future because you may be asking some of these questions yourself or you may have been called on to defend the faith on these issues. The advantage of tonight's approach is that I'm going to boil down many, many hours, probably scores of hours of reading into about 50 minutes of teaching. So you'll have a great outline for how to deal with these issues without having to spend enormous amounts of time. If you keep this one around, I think it'll be helpful, especially since I have many of the, the teachings from the philosophers right there within your, within your notes. They'll be useful, I think. So as we begin, I think it's important to realize that if we lived before what was called the Enlightenment, and we were dealing with questions about evil, we'd be able to jump right in. However, in the last two centuries, a little more than that, a transformation of thought has occurred that in the emergence of the philosophies of naturalism, materialism, or secular humanism. The age of reason, if you will, that all truth ought to be, you ought to be able to get to truth uh, independent of God or uh, the concept of the divine, but just through human reason. And this is in an entirely new way of thinking, and it requires us to begin first by dealing with the assumptions that underlie the questions related to evil. Notice something. There's a way to basically make all the questions about evil moot by utilizing two very commonly espoused tenets of naturalism. Here they are. These are your first blanks in your notes tonight. Tenet number one, everything that has ever occurred in the universe or ever will, including every detail of human behavior, so everything that's ever happened, including every detail of human behavior is nothing other than the inevitable results of purely, purely material, physical, and natural forces. Tenet number one of naturalism. Tenet number two, here's your blank. Because of this, the concept of evil and the distinction between right and wrong are an illusion. Let me say that again. Because of this, because everything is all from natural, random, purposeless forces, Number two, because of this, the concept of evil and the distinction between right and wrong is an illusion. In fact, they teach that even things like love, the feeling like you ought or ought not to do any of things, these things, the concept of beauty, the beauty in art, are all just neurophysical, neurochemical forces, and they actually are an illusion. They're not real, that there's something beyond just the material uh, response. So before we deal with the questions about evil, First, we need to deal with the reality of evil, the reality that there is truth, the reality that there is right and wrong. Because if there's no such thing as evil, if there's no such thing as right and wrong, then the problem of evil disappears. So let's begin with several uh, popular concepts of rel relativism. Uh, I've written them here on the board, um, and um, uh, notice... Um, You'll, you have heard, many of you have heard this maybe even in college courses, and you certainly hear it all the time espoused in, uh, in this secular society. There's no such thing as absolute truth. The second one, truth always depends upon your perspective. Again, I'm sure you have heard many of these. 
All truth is relative. Again, this has happened since the Enlightenment. Um, there's no such thing as right or wrong. Everyone, there's a long one, but, uh, but uh, listen to it, track with it. Everyone has the right to determine right and wrong for themselves. And no one has the right to consider their truth as superior to anyone else's truth. And then the last one I wrote down, there are many more, but I'm sure you have heard these kinds of things. Only I can determine what's right for me. In other words, right and wrong are centered in me. It is a completely I-centered way to envision any concept of right or wrong. So let's um, look at some of the responses to the denial of the existence of truth and of the existence of right and wrong. And, and again, the reason why we're spending this time tonight is, is that in the next several weeks, we're going to deal with the problems, the problem of evil. But if you take that out, if you take out the concept, if you say evil really isn't, it's all, everything's really relative. There really is no right or wrong. Then it makes that, those questions moot. So that's where we start. So there are many ways to approach this, but I'd, I'd like to give a few simple tools that combat these very romancing concepts. This idea of, of truth is centered in me. Uh, nobody has the right to tell anybody else what's right and, and wrong for them. And so first we'll start with a few practical things. So listen to these kinds of statements again. There is no right or wrong. There is no absolute truth. All truth is relative. Right and wrong always depend upon your perspective and your point of view. So we're going to deal with nine or ten responses tonight before we apply. Response number one, here's your blanks. Relativism self-destructs in the real world. Relativism self-destructs in the real world. The only setting in which statements like all truth is relative are even plausible are in abstract, intellectual, subjective, philosophical discussions. So people like college professors, talk show hosts, high school teachers, media pundits, and politicians often feel free to pontificate about the nature of reality while simultaneously they are completely detached from actual reality. As soon as you apply the concepts that they espouse, to real life, they immediately collapse, right? As soon as you say, there's no right or wrong, nobody, it always depends, all truth depends upon your perspective. So let me give some practical examples. Uh, would anyone want their hairstylist to believe that there's not a right and a wrong way to do their hair? After all, this is a fairly trivial example, but it's a good one. <laughs> a mohawk is just as good as what you want from their perspective. So a mohawk it shall be. You have no right to determine what they should do with your head. And uh, how about your surgeon? Do you want them to think, it really doesn't matter which hip I replace. After all, there's no right or wrong. In fact, left and right are merely conventions that we have assigned to the two sides of the body. But no one should worry about these conventions because they actually aren't real. Because in fact, there isn't anything that's actually right or wrong. And how about the pilot that's flying your plane? Do you want them thinking, the flight manual says that I'm supposed to land this jet at 150 miles an hour. That's awfully rigid. After all, truth is relative. So I'm going to land it at 500 miles an hour. And what about the mechanical engineer? Let me give a really serious recent example that exposes how 
bankrupt this concept is. After the disastrous collapse of the massive apartment complex in Florida last year, do you think anyone would believe that it doesn't really matter whether the engineer and the architect who develop building specifications thinks that, think that there's a right way and a wrong way to specify to be the architect for and to engineer a building? The bottom line is, even the most avowed atheist desperately wants their hairstylist, their pilot, their surgeon, and the engineers that have built everything around us to believe that there is absolute truth. There's a right way to land a plane and a wrong way. So now that we've dealt some, with some of the practical issues, let's move to the logical level. Let's, let me explain why arguments like there's no truth, or all truth is relative, or truth depends upon your perspective, always ultimately backfire on themselves. The statements backfire logically on themselves. So here's response number two. The law of non-contradiction, the law of non-contradiction has overarching influence in all matters of truth. Another way of saying this is that truth, by definition, is exclusive. We already saw it with the example of it is true that you land the plane at 150 miles an hour or the consequences are catastrophic. You cannot get around that. So here's the law of non-contradiction. Here's your blanks. Write them in. Given identical context and meaning. So that's the setup. Given identical context and meaning, a statement cannot simultaneously elicit two opposite true answers. If all things are equal, a, a statement cannot simultaneously give two opposite answers and be true. So, for example, let's say that you're, you and your wife are out walking, uh, you know, wherever, and some, you see somebody that you know, and they say, hey, uh, to, to your wife, hey, I heard that you're going to have a baby. Um, I heard you're pregnant. And if simultaneously your wife says yes and you say no, the person who asked that question, they might think, well, oh, shoot, obviously she didn't tell him yet. Or maybe I had something wrong or, or, or may, maybe somebody misspoke. But they're never going to say, thank you, that helps me very much. This is just, uh, this is an example of non-contradiction. Either she is pregnant or she is not pregnant. Both are not true. <laughs> Both are not true at the same time. So it's actually easy to expose inherently illogical philosophy that there is no absolute truth or that there is no right or wrong. Here's the claim. Listen to it. There's no right or wrong. And the simple question that literally can be asked by a typical elementary school child is, is that statement right? Listen to the question. Listen to the statement. There is no right or wrong. The simple question, is that statement right? They're trying to refute anyone who can make truth claims by making a truth claim themselves. So how about this one? There is no such thing as truth. The obvious question is, is that statement true? Ironically, the statement that there is no such thing as truth is itself a truth claim. The very fact that a person is arguing with you about whether there's such a thing as right and wrong means that they believe that they are right and you are wrong. 
Otherwise, they wouldn't be arguing with you. They're, the very argument is self-defeating. Their statement is inherently self-negating. When they make this statement, there is no truth. The statement is false on its own terms. Notice, it falls apart because of the law of non-contradiction. Response number three, here's your blanks. Human quarreling is powerful evidence of the reality of humanity's moral obligation. Listen to that again. Human quarreling is powerful evidence of the reality of humanity's moral obligation. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes this point brilliantly, and this is in your notes so you can follow along. Look, look at his thinking. It's incredible. Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. How, but however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things they say. They say things like this. How'd you like it if someone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on. You promised. People say things like that every day. <laughs> a great insight. Look at this. Educated people, as well as uneducated, and children, as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior uh, does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, forget your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that he has been do what he's been doing does not really go against the standard. Or, if it does, there's some special excuse. Isn't this insightful? He pretends there's some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it, or that things were quite different when he was given the bit of orange, or <laughs> that something has turned up that lets him off the hook for keeping his promise. It looks like, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality about which they really agreed. And they have. If they had not, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they could not quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other person is in the wrong. And there would be no sense of trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as what to right and wrong are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a, fa a foul, this is of course the English term for, for soccer, a footballer had committed a foul unless there is some agreement about the rules of football. So we see that no matter what people espouse philosophically, everyone knows that there's a law of decent behavior and everyone has the moral obligation to follow it. Response number four. Here's your blanks. Ironically, those who say there is no right or wrong complain just as loudly as anyone else when they are, you ready? When they are wronged. <laughs> when they're wronged. Listen to C.S. Lewis again from Mere Christianity. Here it is in your notes. Look at this. But the most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a person who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, 
you will find him going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one made to him, he will be complaining, it's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson. A nation may say treaties do not matter, but then, next minute, they spoil their case by saying that the, the particular treaty that they want to break was an unfair one. But if treaties do not matter, and if there's no such thing as right or wrong, in other words, if there is no law of nature, what is the difference between a fair treaty and an unfair one? Have they not let the cat out of the bag and shown that whatever they say, they really know the law of nature just like everyone else? It seems then we are forced to believe in a right and wrong. People may be sometimes mistaken about them, just as people sometimes get their arithmetic wrong. But right and wrong are not a matter of mere taste and opinion any more than the multiplication table. Response number five. The fact that everyone excuses, makes excuses means, here's a blank again, the fact that everyone makes excuses means that deep down we all know there is right and wrong. Listen to Lewis as he continues his discussion about the natural law. It's in your notes. I'm not preaching, and heaven knows I do not pretend to be better than anyone else. I am only trying to call attention to a fact. We have all failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior we expect from other people. There may be all sorts of excuses for us. That time you were so unfair to the children was when you were very tired. That slightly shady business about the money, the one you have almost forgotten, came when you were very hard up. And what you promised to do for old so-and-so and have never done, well, you never would have promised if you had known how frightfully busy you were going to be. The point is, I do not succeed in keeping the law of nature very well. And the moment anyone tells me I'm not keeping it, there starts up in my mind a string of excuses as long as your arm. The question at the moment is not whether they are good excuses. The point is that they are one more proof of how deeply, whether we like it or not, we believe that there is right and wrong. If we do not believe in decent behavior, why would we be so anxious to make excuses for not having behaved decently? The truth is, we believe in decency so much, we feel the rule of law pressing on us so, that we cannot bear to face the fact that we are breaking it, and consequently, we try to shift the responsibility. Oh, is that not true? For you notice that it's only for our bad behavior that we find all these explanations. It is only for our bad temper that we put down to being tired or worried or hungry. We put our good temper down to ourselves. Isn't it remarkable? No matter how much you say right, there's no right or wrong. We make excuses for things that we do that we know are wrong, and we take credit for things that we do that we know are right. Response number six. Response number six. I'll read this twice because there's four blanks. You can't have it both ways. Either there is a moral basis for human rights, or there is no basis for them. And if there's no basis for them, then there are no human rights. Let that sink in. You can't have it both ways. Either there is a moral basis for human rights, not just convenience, actual rights, right and wrong. 
there are moral basis for human rights or there is no basis for them. And if there is no basis for them, then there are no human rights. Getting rid of all moral absolutes sounds very freeing, doesn't it? Oh, just live the way you want. However, it creates fatal complications for itself when it's actually applied in real life. Listen to how author, pastor, and philosopher Timothy Keller describes the floundering that happens about the basis for human dignity and human rights when the concept of universal truth is removed. It's in your notes. Read with me. The universal sense of moral obligation creates a problem for those with a secular understanding of the world. Carolyn Fleur Laban is an anthropologist whose professional field is dominated by what she calls cultural relativism, the view that all moral beliefs are culturally created. In other words, all morality just comes out of the community, what you, where you happen to grow up. In other words, there is no basis for objectively judging one culture's morality to be better than another. Yet, she was appalled by practices in society she was studying that oppressed women. She decided that she should promote women's interests in the societies where she worked as an anthropologist. This immediately created a conundrum for her. She knew that her belief in women's equality was rooted in a socially located, meaning Western, post-enlightenment, individualistic mode of thought. So what right did she have to promote her views over those of the non-Western societies where she was working? Here was her response. So this comes from Dr. Fleur Laban herself. Look at this. Anthropologists continue to express strong support for cultural relativism. However, a most contentious issue arises from the fundamental question. What authority do we Westerners have to impose our own concept of universal rights on the rest of humanity? But the cultural relevance argument is turned around and used by oppressive governments to deflect criticism of their abuse of their citizens. I believe that, she says, I believe that we should not let the concept of relativism stop us from using national and international forums to protect the lives and dignity of people in every culture. When there is a choice between defending human rights and defending cultural relativism, anthropologists should choose to protect and promote human rights. We cannot be bystanders. Look at Keller's response to that. Fleur Laban poses a difficult question. If all cultures are relative, then so is the idea of universal human rights. So how can I decide to impose my values on another culture? Amazingly, she doesn't answer her own question. And then, amazingly, she rejects her fundamental philosophy of relativism, and she declares, women are being oppressed and we have to stop it. We must bring our Western values to other nations. Our values are better than theirs, period. Isn't that absolutely stunning lack of self-reflection? Notice her complete rejection of the very philosophy that her entire academic discipline is founded on. The problem is in making a value judgment about other cultures' behavior, she has to reject the very basis for her anthropology. 
and she commits an inherently illogical contradiction. Here's a modern anthropologist's impossible prediction, uh, pr excuse me, predicament. Look at this. You can't have it both ways. Either there is right and wrong, or there is not. But if there's no right or wrong, we must accept relativism, and no one can say that violating human rights is wrong. And so, when Dr. Fleur-Laubin rejects relativism, she is showing that just like C.S. Lewis contended so eloquently, everyone knows that there is natural law, everyone knows that there is universal truth, and everyone knows that there is right and wrong. It is absolutely inescapable. Isn't it amazing how God has built a futility into the universe so that you cannot get around this. Response number seven. Here's your blanks. Ready? While the statement, each religion sees part of spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth, sounds humble. It's actually an enormously arrogant position to hold. It's really common nowadays for people to say that there can't be just one religion. Timothy Keller does a great job of refuting this position. Listen, and you can see, again, why I've given you these, these resources, these amazing philosophers tonight, because this all flows from each of these responses with these texts. It is really powerful refuting of the concept of relativism. So here's Keller. Many people contend that each religion can see part of spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth. Sometimes this point is illustrated with the story of the blind men and the elephant. Several blind men were walking along and came upon an elephant that allowed them to touch and feel it. This creature, notice the first one, this creature is long and flexible like a snake, said the first blind man, holding the elephant's trunk. Not at all. It's thick and round like a tree trunk, said the second blind man, feeling the elephant's leg. No, it's large and flat, said the third blind man, touching the elephant's side. Each blind man could only see part of the elephant, but none could envision the entire elephant. In the same way, it is argued, the religions of the world each have a grasp on part of the truth about spiritual reality, but none can see the whole elephant or claim to have a comprehensive vision of the truth. I don't know if you've ever heard that or expressions like it, but it sure seems to put people in a, a conundrum. But notice how easy this is to expose what's going on. Look at the next paragraph. This illustration backfires on its users. The story is told from the point of view of someone who is not blind. How could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have a superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality that you just claimed that none of the religions have? <laughs> what a quandary, right? I love how theologian Leslie Newbigin responds to this idea with that no one religion is able to claim that it has the truth. Listen to Dr. Newbigin. This is brilliant. Here's, it's in your notes. There is an appearance of humility 
in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, then it is in fact an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all other views. We have to ask, what is the absolute vantage point, in other words, the person who's not blind, who sees everything, what is the absolute vantage point from which you claim to be able to relativize all absolute claims made by other religions? Isn't that brilliant? Look at that. What is the absolute vantage point which you claim to be able to relativize all absolute claims made by the other religions? So notice, for someone to claim that no one religion can have the whole truth means that they have to be able to know the whole truth themselves. And this claim requires arrogance of the highest order. Response number eight, here's your blank. To say that a religion cannot be true, it is, excuse me, to say that a religion cannot be true because it is ethnocentric is in itself an ethnocentric position. Let me say that again. To say that a religion cannot be true because it is ethnocentric is in itself an ethnocentric position. Listen to John, C. John Somerville's critique of this way of thinking. Many say, it's in your notes, many say it is ethnocentric to claim that our religion is superior to others. Yet, isn't it very, that very statement ethnocentric? Most non-Western cultures have no problem saying that their culture and religion is best. The idea that it is wrong to do so is deeply rooted in Western traditions of self-criticism and individualism. To charge others with the sin, I love how he says this, to charge others with the sin of ethnocentrism is really a way of saying our Western culture's approach to other cultures is superior to you, yours. We are doing the very thing that we forbid others to do. Amazing. Once again, we see that relativistic philosophy is inherently contradictory. I'm going to say that your cultures can't say they're right, which means I believe mine is right and mine is superior to theirs. Sounding humble, but in fact a high level of arrogance. Relativistic philosophy uses its own absolute position to relativize all other absolute positions. And so it exempts itself from the demand that it requires from all other philosophies. Response number nine, here it is, number nine, the relentlessly contradictory and unfixable flaw in relativism. Let me start that again. The re relentlessly contradictory and unfixable flaw in relativism is that, you ready? Relativism relativizes itself. Relativism relativizes itself. There could have been a huge amount here. If you, you should read Mere Christianity, whether you have or haven't before, reread it again. And, and Lewis is so brilliant on this. But, but look at Keller, how he does a great job of seeing through the errors of the claims of, of relativism. Look at this. The fatal, fatal flaw in relativism's attack on religion in general and Christianity in particular, is obvious. Skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. 
But this objection is itself a religious belief. It assumes that God is unknowable, or that God is loving but not wrathful, or that God is an impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in Scripture. All of these are unprovable faith assumptions. In addition, their proponents believe they have a superior way to view things. They believe that the world would be a better place if everyone dropped the traditional religion's views of God and truth and adopted theirs. Therefore, their view is also an exclusive claim about the nature of spiritual reality. If all such views are to be discouraged, this one should be discouraged as well. And look at, look at uh, uh, Peter Berger, amazing philosopher, incredibly insightful on this issue. He says this, it's in your notes. Absolute relativism can only exist if the relativists exempt themselves from their own razor. What a brilliant insight. If you say no belief system can be held to be universally true for everyone, that itself is a universal claim about everyone's beliefs. Thus, it cannot be true on its own terms. In other words, relativity relativizes itself. If you say that all truth is relative, then that statement is relative as well, and thus cannot be true. So, a lot of philosophy crammed in, but like I say, this is 20 to 50 hours worth of reading put together. I really encourage you to keep it for the future, but let's do a few minutes on application before we finish. Application number one, here's your blanks. The beliefs held by the typical secular thinker today are logically contradictory. Tonight we've repeatedly seen the pattern in contradictory thinking that's common among secularists. But I want us to see another contradiction that will nicely set up the next several weeks. We're going to be dealing with the problem of evil, so this will help to set these, these uh, sessions up. Uh, this contradiction shows the fundamental illogic of modern thinking. It's found in two common concepts believed by secular humanists. Here's your blanks. Secular concept number one, all truth is relative and, therefore, right and wrong depend upon your perspective. Right? Secular concept number one, you hear it all the time. All truth is relative and, therefore, right and wrong depend upon your perspective. And secular concept number two, you ready? Here's your blank. There's too much evil in the world for God to exist. There's too much evil in the world for God to exist, one of the primary foundations of many people's atheism. You may be aware that one of the most common reasons that atheists say that they're atheists is because there's so much evil in the world. But here's their problem. Essentially, every atheist is also a moral relativist. And that means that they must reject any ultimate concept of right or wrong, moral or immoral, and good versus evil. And this exposes the typical atheist circular conundrum. You ready? Here come your blanks. Point number one, their atheism is based upon there being too much evil in the world for God to exist. You've heard it many times, I'm sure. If God is all-powerful and all-good, then there can't be a God. There's so much evil in the world, either God is not good or 
or God is not God. He's either not all-powerful or he's not good, right? They say that kind of thing over and over again. Their atheism is based upon there being too much evil in the world for God to exist. Point number two, their relativism means that there are no absolutes, which means that true evil doesn't exist. Notice the conundrum that they're running into. And point number three, but their atheism depends upon the existence of evil. Remember point number one? The reason they don't believe in God is because there's so much evil. There's too much evil. There couldn't be a good God, an all-powerful God. Point number three, but their atheism depends upon the existence of evil. And so their relativism invalidates their atheism. Isn't that amazing? Let me say that again. But their atheism depends upon the existence of evil, and so their relativism invalidates their atheism. Because remember what their atheism is based upon. Many people, too much evil, but their relativism means there is no evil, and therefore it destroys the basis for their atheism. So this is why we'll be dealing with the problem of evil in the next several weeks. Because evil does exist, and its existence has to be dealt with. Right? God isn't off the hook now. He's actually on the hook because evil is, in fact, a reality. But because everyone knows that evil exists, this means that moral relativism is logically bankrupt. It refutes itself. And thus, it gives us the perfectly self-defeating nature of moral relativism. Write this one in. There's a lot of words back and forth, but you will see how this is the perfectly self-defeating nature of of moral relativism, here's your blanks. If relativism, if relativism is true, then there is no truth. But if there's no truth, then nothing, including relativism, can be true. If relativism is true, then there is no truth. That's what they say. But if there's no truth, then nothing, including relativism, can be true. Notice, a perfectly self-defeating philosophy. So the reason to reject relativism isn't just because it's bad philosophy, but because it's inherently illogical. At its very foundation, it's contradictory. And because it's utter, complete, absolute nonsense, it makes no sense. Application number two, application number two, as badly as we want to determine our own right and wrong, to call our own shots. If there is no law, no truth, no absolutes, and no judge, then there's no hope. As badly as we want to determine our own right and wrong, to call our own shots. If there's no law, no truth, no absolutes, and no judge, then there's no hope. This truth is brilliantly articulated in the play entitled After the Fall that was written by Arthur Miller, who's a playwright, but actually, as you'll see, is a brilliant philosopher as well. The character, Quentin, has lived his life deciding his own right and wrong. But now, he's trying to decide whether his life actually mattered, and if he made the right choices, and if there was any real purpose in the things that he did in life. And now, it's occurring to him that what he's really hoping for is some kind of cosmic courtroom that will make a final decision about whether what he did in life was actually right or wrong. And listen to his lament. It's in your notes. Look at this. 
For many years, he's speaking to, this is self-talk, thinking, speaking to himself. For many years, I looked at life like a case at law in a courtroom. And I was, and I, as I pursued things in life, I believed it was moving upward towards some goal. I was moving toward a final day in court where I would be justified or even condemned. I was moving toward a verdict. But now I realize that my disaster really began when I looked up one day, you ready for this? And the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was an endless argument with myself. This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. What incredible insight the playwright had. What he's saying is that we all live as if it's better to seek peace instead of war, to tell the truth instead of lying, to care and nurture rather than destroying. We believe that these choices aren't pointless and that it really matters which way we choose to live. Yet, if the cosmic bench is truly empty, if there is no judge and no final judgment, then who says that one choice is really better than the others? We can argue about it, but it's just pointless argument, as Quentin in the play says, it's just endless litigation of existence before an empty bench. If the bench is truly empty, then the whole span of human, human civilization, even if it lasts a few million years, will be just as infinitesimally a, a brief spark in relation to the oceans of dead time that preceded it and that will follow it. There will be no, no one to remember any of it. Whether we are loving or cruel, nurturing or destructive, kind or hateful, will in the end make no difference. If there is no judge, then nothing really matters. And so, <clears throat> here's the great irony of our age. By adopting moral relativism, we've desperately tried to free ourselves from God's laws, from God's word, and from obedience to God's will. In this desperate attempt to find freedom, we've only found pain, suffering, and despair. Talk about ironic. In this desperate attempt to find freedom, we've only found pain, suffering, and despair. Here's the fundamental problem for everyone who tries to make up their own plans, their own rules, their own ways. If there is no judge, then life is pointless. Life is meaningless. And life is without hope. In the end, Everything that anyone ever thought, ever said, ever did, or didn't do will mean precisely nothing. So as we close tonight, I end with some questions. Listen carefully. Have you tried running from the judge? Or are you living for him so that your life will have true meaning and actually make a difference in this world. Don't take this to mean that I'm asking you if you follow the rules. I'm asking you, do you walk in constant communion with the perfect and merciful judge? Are you consumed with a desire to bring pleasure 
to the one who alone is good, who alone is right? Or have you become your own judge, deciding for yourself how you'll live, choosing your own ways, making your own plans? Every person who tries to free themselves from the natural law that God has built into humanity is on a collision course with reality. You'll never get around God's laws. You'll never get around God's purposes. You'll never get around the futility that God has built into the universe for everyone who tries to run from the way that God has created reality. If you're running from his truth, you'll ultimately be confronted with nothing but despair. Listen, what you seek, you will not find. What you hope for, you will not obtain. What you work hard for will slip through your fingers, and in the end, you'll have nothing but you at the center, clinging to your pitiful little plans without joy, without freedom, and without hope. If you demand your freedom from God, you'll only find bondage. If you, if you demand your autonomy from God's will, you'll only find shackles. If you demand freedom on your own terms, ironically, you'll only find slavery. All of the true good that any of us has ever pursued is found alone in God. But the great news is God has made a way for every one of us to come home, to find peace, to find joy, and to find hope in him. Tonight, the great news is the universe does have a perfect judge. The despair can be wiped out by bowing before him and saying, Oh God, I've been wrong. It was my sin, my fault, my way. And oh Lord, forgive me and empower me to live your goodness through the power of your spirit as I live for Christ alone.